us, is this the lunch loop? If so, um, we wish to cancel. Um, we do not wish to belong to that or to pay this anymore. Thank you. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of the Lunloop Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk about the intersection of markets, money, and life. And if you're interested in the intersection of markets, trading, and life, you should check out the Lunloop newsletter. What do you get in the Lunloop newsletter? Well, I'll tell you what. Subscribers, every day after the close, they get market commentary and a list of actionable trading setups. They get exclusive access to the Lunloop Discord. Every weekend, I send out a market strategy video where I cover the previous week's activity and then look forward to the potential profit opportunities in the coming week. There's a video lesson library. There's just so much there for Lundloop subscribers. Uh, you can also sign up for free and get a daily market recap sent to you. So just go to thelundloop.com, go to brianlund.com. Google Brian Lund, Google the Lund Loop, whatever. You'll, you'll figure it out. But uh, we'd love to have you uh, become a part of the Lund Loop community. So this is actually episode 41, but it's version two of episode 41 because last night I recorded the full episode 41. And right before I was ready to send everything out to subscribers, I had a massive technological failure, which I don't even want to recount because it was so uh, so painful. And I lost all my stuff. I lost this podcast. I lost the videos. I lost everything. So I'm now redoing episode 41 of the Lundloop podcast. I just got back from the LA Arboretum. It's Saturday midday right now. And every Saturday, we try every Saturday morning to go up uh, to the Arboretum and walk the grounds. It's a beautiful place. And just as we were leaving, we were, we were sitting there getting ready to leave. And I turned to my right and some ladies walked up with yoga mats. And then a couple more ladies walked up with yoga mats. And then some guys walked up and all these people were milling around with their yoga mats. And then of course, you know, obviously the next thing that happened was a bunch of goats showed up. <laughs> and what we had walked into or what they had walked into uh, was goat yoga. They were about ready to do goat yoga. I'm not kidding. Goat yoga is a thing. It's yoga with goats. They actually put the goats on you during yoga. I, I swear to God, I'm not making this up. In fact, if you look at the California goat yoga website, here's what it says. It says that yoga with goats improves your workout. Why? Well, here's why. One of the reasons goat yoga came about was to increase the intensity of workouts. Doing a downward dog with a goat balancing on your back is no easy task, as goats typically weigh between 5 and 15 pounds, depending on the breed and the age of the goat. The added weight of the goat means that you have to exert more effort to perform any exercise. This helps improve your overall strength as well as your cardio capacity and your muscular endurance. If you haven't worked out for a while, you can allow the smaller and lighter goats to jump onto your back instead of the bigger ones. Goats make ideal training partners as they are nimble and sure-footed and enjoy jumping up onto a person's back when they are exercising. Oh, by the way, a goat may defecate all over your back. Now, I just added that part, but isn't that the risk here? 
isn't it the risk that you have a goat on your back and it decides to do its business? I mean, I said to my kids, we as a human race must be in a pretty good spot right now. Because if people are sitting out there thinking, what does the world need? And do we need a, a, a more medicine? Do we need more food? Is, do we need more education? No, you know what we need? We need goat yoga. That's right. Yoga is not good enough. We need to add goats to the mix. We, they're not doing goat yoga in Africa. In Africa, they're trying to survive. They're trying to figure out how to get their next meal, to keep their family safe. They don't have the luxury of goat yoga in a lot of places around the world. So the fact that we can actually have goat yoga says we must be doing pretty good here. All right. Well, look, we're not talking about goat yoga on today's podcast, but this podcast is about markets, money, and life. And I've been a little light on the life stuff the last three or four weeks. I've been focusing mostly on markets and money. So what I thought I would do is hit a little bit of the life stuff and then bring it around, you know, halfway through to something a little bit more market oriented. I got an email this week from a subscriber asking me if I had any suggestions on how to choose a therapist. Now, before I go any farther, let me just clarify something. I, I, I make myself accessible to subscribers. Uh, I'm accessible online. I'm a very open and honest person. I use a lot of my interactions with people for the basis of uh, content like, you know, podcast or my writing, but I never have, and I never, ever would betray any confidences. I'll, I'll never obviously name somebody if they reach out to me or if they share some, something intimate. And not only that, but I will always make sure that uh, the way I write or talk about the person is unidentifiable. So uh, I just want to put that up front. I would never betray any confidences, but I had a subscriber that was asking about recommending a therapist. And it's because I've, I've written about therapy and I'm a big fan of therapy, not just for your own well-being, but I think it helps a lot in the market. There's so many emotional buttons and triggers that the market brings out in us that we sometimes don't understand are happening. And I think if you go into therapy, it helps you to kind of identify those things and more importantly, identify them when they're happening so that they don't bleed into your trading and, and cause bad things to happen. So I, I told him, look, I haven't actually written anything about how to pick a therapist. And so what I thought I would do is I thought I would here give a couple of tips that I have come across over the years when it comes to, to therapy. By the way, therapy can be a lot of different things. If you're making an active, uh, if you're actively pursuing meditation, or mindfulness, or a stoic lifestyle, uh, or even exercise, like that's a kind of therapy, definitely, because they all help you, and they all help you improve yourself. In this case, we were talking more of a, a classical therapy, where you go to find a, a, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a family therapist, and and you do some one-on-one, -on -one, or if it's couples therapy, you know, two-on-one work with them. So here's, here's my just off-the-cuff best ideas. The first thing is obviously if you have friends or family that have had good success with a therapist, that's a great way to get a referral. Once you find a therapist, part of the problem is you don't really won't know if it's a good therapist until you find them. So once you find them, I think there's there's two key factors that you have to keep in mind. The first is your therapist has to make a commitment, like a real commitment for progress. 
what happens a lot of times is people go to therapy and it's just this open-ended process. They just go in there, they talk for an hour, the therapist goes, uh-huh, oh, that's interesting. Oh, well, tell me more about that. How did you feel when that happened? Can you unpack that? So if you ever have a therapist say, can you unpack that for me? Run. Because all they're going to do is just keep doing that as long as you come. There's no, there's no quantifiable process to say, okay, we're going to try to work on these issues. And we're not only going to just work on these issues, but we're going to have some... Um, some structure to, to determine, are you making progress? How are things going? You don't want to be Woody Allen. You don't want to be someone that is just stuck in therapy for 30 or 40 years doing the same thing. So that's number one. Make sure that your therapist is, is committed to moving you forward in the process. And it's, it's not as common as you would think because there's no vested interest for a therapist to challenge you, to push back on you, to... Um, to, to expect that there's progress. It's tough for a lot of people to go to therapy in the first place. So they're very tentative. And then if you have a therapist that is actually challenging you, a lot of people go, this isn't for me. So the therapist wants you to keep coming, keep, keep getting billable hours. And so a lot of times they'll just sit there and listen to you for an hour and send you a bill. And that really doesn't help. There's no, there's no purpose to that. So that's number one. Number two, this is specific to couples therapy. Now I have way too much experience in couples therapy. I was in couples therapy at 20 with a girlfriend who I'd only dated for about a year, if you can believe that. And I remember we were, we'd gone to a couple of therapy sessions. This is like our third one. And every therapy session we just got in there, we were just arguing and arguing and going at each other. This is the third one. We got there a little early, about 10 minutes early. We're out in the front of the office making this forced small talk. And it was like at the exact same time our eyes met and I could tell, I think she's thinking the same thing I'm thinking. And I said to her, I go, do you really want to be here? And she's like, nah, I really don't. And so I popped my head into the therapist and said, we're leaving. <laughs> we're not coming back. And it was this moment where I thought to myself, I'm 20 years old and I'm just dating this this gal and I'm in therapy, couples therapy. Like, where is this relate? This relationship is dead. It's not going anywhere. Ironically, I found out later that night after we scuttled the the appointment, she actually went out on a date with someone who ended up being her uh, her future husband. And oddly enough, I went and met my friends at a bar and ended up meeting someone and we started dating. She didn't end up being my my wife, but so I've got a lot of experience going way back to couples therapy. And so the way that most people go into couples therapy is they have the attitude, I'm going to go in there and my job is to win the therapist over as an ally for me to beat up on the other person. So people go in there and they just start telling, well, he does this and she does that. And it's basically the same sort of fight that they could have at home. The only difference is you're paying someone $200 an hour to be the referee. And again, they're not really the referee. They'll just sit there and let you talk and argue and go back and forth and go, let's, let's follow up on this next session for another $200 or $250. So the way that I suggest people go to couples therapy is don't go as couples. Start off going to therapy separately, independently. 
again, with a therapist who's going to challenge you, that's going to, you know, hold your feet to the fire to some extent. And then you have to have a super, super hardcore commitment to facing it. Uh, is this the blunt loop? All right. So I, like millions of people around the world, I'm a big George Orwell fan. But I view my fandom of Orwell a little bit differently. I look at it like a pyramid. At the bottom of Orwell fandom is the book that everybody knows him for. It's the book that almost everybody starts with and a huge swath of people end with when it comes to Orwell. And that, of course, is the book 1984. Great book. I love it. But then the pyramid gets a lot narrower at the next book. And that's usually Animal Farm. Fewer people have read Animal Farm. Now, I think Animal Farm is actually, in some ways, an even better book than 1984. And the reason that people have even read Animal Farm, I think, is because it's actually a very small book. So they start with 1984, fewer people go to Animal Farm. Then the pyramid starts getting really narrow. That's when we start getting into the, the, the biographical books from Orwell. So we've got um, Homage to Catalonia, which is his biographical story of fighting in the, the Spanish Civil War. He was a volunteer that went to go fight in that war. Then we've got one of my favorites, which is Down and Out in Paris and London, where he writes about his time basically being a, a beggar, a street urchin in, in both those cities. Again, very few people have read those. Then we even get narrower. This is where we get to Burmese Days. Burmese Days, it's not a... It's not a biography. It is a novel, but it's based upon Orwell's time as a colonial police officer in Burma. So it is somewhat autobiographical. And then after that, it really drops off. There's Keep the Aspidistra Flying. There's The Clergyman's Daughter. There's a bunch of other novels that almost nobody has read. However, my Orwell fandom goes up to that very narrow peak of the pyramid. And that is, or are, his essays and his polemics that he read or that he wrote over the years for various um, various outlets. There are some fantastic short stories, some fantastic essays. One of them that you should find is called The Hanging. It is just amazing. There's another one called Shooting an Elephant. There are literally, I think, hundreds of Orwell short stories, essays, polemics that you can read. And to me, they're way better than all of his books. The thing I love about Orwell, the thing that's inspiring to me about Orwell, is unlike many of his literary contemporaries, Orwell was not considered a genius. He went to a decent prep school, but he never went to college, or as the British would call it, university. He was smart, but he wasn't like F. Scott Fitzgerald smart or Hemingway smart in that brilliance of writing. Life was also not very kind to Orwell, and neither were the critics of his time. But history has treated him well, and it's proved him right on so many of the key issues that he wrote about uh, over the course of the 20th century. So how is it that, that Orwell has got this great reputation that he is read by so many that he's thought of so highly, but he's not a genius. He doesn't have that literary you know, stroke of lightning that so many others have. Well, Orwell gave us a clue as to why that is. 
back in 1946, he was being interviewed and he was talking about his early youth. And he said, I knew, I knew even back then that I had a faculty with words and more importantly, a power of facing unpleasant facts. Now you'll notice he doesn't say the ability to face them. He says specifically a power of facing. The reaction of most people to unpleasant facts is rarely self-criticism. They don't have the power of facing. Their confrontation with facts takes a different form. It's a form of evasion. When they are confronted with unpleasant facts, they double down their efforts to overcome what is the obvious. The unpleasant facts that Orwell faced were usually the ones that put his own position or his preferences to the test. And he had the power to stick with those and to keep pushing forward and to go, okay, this part of my theory doesn't work anymore, or this doesn't prove itself out. And then to add and refine and evolve his ideas, his beliefs. And that came out in his writing. So when you go into couples therapy, you have to have that power of facing it. And that power of facing it in therapy is to say, what are my issues? Forget about the partner, the other person. You can't fix them. All you can do is work on yourself. And you hope that they do the same, that they are working on themselves. And then once you get your each other's shit straightened out, then you come back together and figure out how it works together. But without that power of facing it, it's just never going to work. Uh, is this the lunch loop? This obviously has application in the stock market, has application in trading. There's a huge impetus for people to self-deceive, to not face it. It's sometimes in very obvious ways. For example, this past week, this this horrific, horrific uh, biotech stock, NVTA, that uh, I, I've, I've been in and out of, and it's just been a, a train wreck. They announced some, I don't know, some uh, third or fourth or fifth, you know, uh, a shelf offering, some, some highly dilutive event. The stock is down from 60 bucks to, it was like $2.30 before this announcement. And the stock dropped 25% in one day to like $1.60. And if you were to go online and look at these NVTA bulls, they were they were saying the craziest stuff. They were going so out of their way to spin this as it was a good thing. One of my favorite things when this happens is the street is confused. This comes out all the time. Oh, well, this is a very complex uh, refinancing. Or it's, a, it's a complex offer, and I don't think the street understands it correctly. They're not, they're not analyzing it right. The implication here is that Firms and funds with billions of dollars and, and research teams, they they don't understand it, but some guy on StockTwits understands it. Some Someone on Twitter understands it better. The market, as we know, votes with its feet. It, it sells or buys. The, the stock is down 25%. That tells me they understand it, right? But you had people that were just doing everything they could, twisting themselves into a pretzel to avoid facing it, 
facing the fact that they have this terrible stock that they're underwater on that's probably going to just go into a, a vortex of reverse splits and dilution forever. We've seen this in the marijuana space. We've seen these, these ultra bowls in the marijuana space that for two years now have used every excuse in the world to deny what is on the screen which is the, stock, the stocks and the ETFs just going down like they're falling off a cliff. Uh, is this the Lund loop? Nowhere has Orwell ever confirmed this, but it's most likely that he got the term facing it from the book Typhoon by Joseph Conrad. In chapter five, Mr. Jukes, who's the first mate of a ship, goes to the captain, Captain McWhere. And he says, Captain, we're about to enter into a storm, a massive typhoon. How will we get through it? And Captain McWhere responds, facing it, always facing it. That's the way to get through it. Face it. Now, in relation to a ship, what he's saying is that if you go sideways, if you try to avoid it or go around it, you'll likely be capsized by the force of the storm. So you have to point right into that storm and go right into it. Face it. Always face it. As individual investors and traders, the market is our storm. It is always working against us. So we have to constantly be in a facing position, looking honestly at what we're doing and seeing, does it work? Because that's the ultimate barometer. Does it work? Let me give you an example. I thought that I was the greatest trader of all time. I thought that I could trade any equity, any asset class. I thought I could as easily go short as I could go long. However, the financial crisis changed that because I lost a lot of money shorting in the financial crisis. And that's when I first really had to face it and say, I'm not good at shorting. How do I know? Because the outcome is that I'm losing money. So I decided to short less. I also found out that when I'm looking at multiple stocks in different areas that I'm not familiar with, I tend to lose money. So I had to face that. I had to face the fact that I wasn't Mr. I can go short and I can go long equally as well. I wasn't Mr. I can trade everything. And so I changed. I went from shorting a lot of stuff to shorting very rarely. I went from looking at any potential stock out there to a certain pool of stocks that was filtered by liquidity, filtered by familiarity, filtered by the fact that they were widely covered, that they moved a lot smoother. I had to face the fact that I wasn't what I thought I was in those areas. And this all comes back to the idea of therapy. You have to go into it facing your demons. And you have to have that power of facing, meaning when you want to look away, when you want to go around, when you want to obfuscate, when you want to pretend it's not an issue, you have to have that power to hold yourself facing right at it, challenging it so that you can solve it, so that you can have a better outcome. And just like in couples therapy, you can't blame the market. You can't blame the other. You have to look at yourself and you have to face your own issues, your own shortcomings, 
see how they're resulting in bad outcomes in your life and make a commitment to fix them. Um, I would like to repeat that want to be canceled from the Lund loop, whatever you've got me on, um, if you wish to call and explain what it is, uh, actually, uh, forget that. Well, that's it for this episode. If you got any questions, hit me up at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at thelunloop.com. I'll see you next time. Bye.